So I mentioned that book that I had been working on years ago that led me to want to do the podcast. I'd been laboring on, you know, writing this book about basically my own worldview, what led me to be an atheist. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I could do a podcast and not have to struggle to get a book published or trying to self-publish. And I could communicate with people right away. So that was basically the impetus or the genesis of the podcast. Maybe I'll read a little bit from the book. It's been so long ago that I had actually forgotten the exact title. Beyond Religion, The Pursuit of Truth Through Reason by Philip Anthony Albertelli. Yeah, it's kind of pretentious, but let's go. So dedication, and let's hope I don't give myself the, the douche chills here, because I have actually forgotten what I, what I wrote. To my fellow beings, the living and the dead, who have known life as both, and forgive the flowery language, a garden of wonder and a veil of tears. That's a little cringy. And especially, this is, now this was right around when Christopher Hitchens died. And especially to Christopher Hitchens, one of my favorite authors, intellectuals, and orators, who passed away before I, being the procrastinator I am, managed to finish a letter thanking him as a fan for inspiring me with the eloquence of his words, the daring boldness of his arguments, and of course his rousing, unrelenting, and dare I say strident spirit. May we all live life so boldly and on our own terms. In addition, I would like to thank my listeners as well as my fellow skeptical and atheist podcasters for offering me acceptance, encouragement, and a sense of community. Oh, and here I actually mention the podcast. Okay, here's a, a, a note from the author. Since penning the first few paragraphs of this book, I've begun hosting a weekly podcast, as alluded to in the dedication, the name of which is The Week in Doubt, and as the tagline implies, it is a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. The impetus for the show was much the same as the impetus for this book. I felt a need to share and distill my thoughts on life's weighty existential questions, particularly those having to do with faith and religion. The sense of community I have encountered since launching my podcast has made me realize that this book needn't be primarily for myself, as suggested in the preface below. I've witnessed firsthand the effect that one person's words and thoughts can have on another. It is my sincere hope that this book will be as well met by you, the reader, as my show has been by my magnanimous audience, Phil Albertelli. Preface. Is it preface or preface? Tomato, tomato? Ah, here we go. <laughs> The purpose of this book. In a sense, it could be said that I am writing this book more for myself than for the reader, although I certainly would not turn down the chance to profit monetarily from its publishing. First and foremost, though, I have a need to crystallize thoughts I have struggled with for years. Thoughts concerning the nature of existence, God, the afterlife, or lack thereof. Given my strong penchant for grappling with such issues, you could probably argue there is some masochistic streak which compels me to dig into my own existential wounds rather than allowing myself the comfort of belief, if simply allowing myself such a thing were even possible. But even if this were the case, I still believe there is a certain nobility in seeking the truth. I never really understood why faith is considered inherently noble. If we have but one life, certainly we owe it at least to ourselves, to examine it with open eyes. None of us may have all the answers to life's mysteries, being but tiny and temporary creatures in an ever-expanding universe and the like. But armed with reason and mankind's ever-growing body of knowledge and evidence, we can search, continuing to sort out truth from superstition and misconception. I myself am not a scientist. I am not a biologist, physicist, nor theologian. 
What I am is a person who perhaps thinks too much for his own good, with a nagging desire to understand the nature of his own existence. By using reason, personal anecdote, and my own relatively modest knowledge of world history and religion, I hope to shed, as grandiose as it may sound, a modicum of light on the truth of our collective existential situation, at least as far as it pertains to the validity or invalidity of religion and its claims. Perhaps some of my insights and ideas will seem less than original, considering the vast amount of books already published on atheism, existentialism, and philosophy and religion in general. But I promise you that even if my thoughts prove to be lacking in originality, they will not be lacking in sincerity. Should worse come to worse and I fail to break new ground, at least I will have succeeded in gathering my philosophical beliefs into a comprehensive volume. And perhaps also while I'm at it, I may at least succeed in entertaining you, the reader, should eyes other than mine ever fall upon these words, with my peculiar and personal take on things. Chapter 1. Leprechauns and Flying Ouija Boards Extraordinary Claims Require Extraordinary Evidence Carl Sagan I actually think... That might have been Carl Sagan paraphrasing someone else technically, uh, but it's, it's often attributed to Carl Sagan. Anyway, I believe it was roughly first grade when I had one of my first conscious run-ins with myth and deception. It was St. Patrick's Day and our two female teachers had promised us, believe it or not, a visit from a leprechaun. Wide-eyed and waiting, we drank our green-tinted milk and munched the bland cookies we'd been given. I'm not sure what the milk was tinged with, hopefully just some mildly carcinogenic food coloring. After a while, we were informed that we had not been good enough to merit a visit and that the leprechaun had decided not to show. I believe even at this tender age, I had been somewhat incredulous, but of course they had to tell us something since, well, leprechauns do not exist. I doubt there was any intentional malice on the part of our teachers, but still looking back, I'm left with the impression that their actions were ignorant at best, and dare I say it, perhaps even cruel. Leprechauns may not have much to do with religion other than echoing the dead variety, but I think this anecdote helps to illustrate just how quickly adults are sometimes willing to burden children with falsehoods and superstitious beliefs, with little thought to the possible psychological consequences. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy fantasy as much as the next person, perhaps even more. But isn't it enough to enjoy fantasy for its own sake? Aren't things like fairies and leprechauns entertaining enough in concept without trying to convince malleable little minds that they actually exist? It wasn't too long after that I had another strange run-in with the fanciful. This time it was a Sunday school teacher trying to warn us of the dangers of the occult. Although to my child eyes she may have seemed like an authoritative grown-up, Looking back through the fog of memory, I believe she had been a moderately attractive 20-something, probably still undergoing her own intellectual maturation process. She recounted a tale of how she and some friends had been playing with a Ouija board around the time of the holidays. Supposedly the board took off of its own volition, or by that of some demonic entity, and proceeded to fly around the room with a vengeance until ultimately it sent a Christmas tree crashing to the floor. I remember being somewhat spooked and yet simultaneously feeling, once again, somewhat incredulous. Maybe you're asking, what if it really did fly across the room on its own accord? Well, I suppose my answer would be that since such an event seems contradictory to natural law, 
And since I have never been met with satisfactory evidence that such a thing were even possible, and since I have never witnessed with my own eyes nor documented on film an inanimate object make its way through the air without being propelled by some natural force, say for example a leaf born on the wind or a ball leaving a hand via kinetic energy, I must rationally conclude that the story is false. I'm not saying that my teacher was necessarily lying. It was probably more the case that she was indulging herself on some level in the willing suspension of disbelief. Leaf. In both the case of the absentee leprechaun and the flying Ouija board, there was that little nagging voice, that seed of reason that said, something is not right here. Although I don't waste my time stewing over these early events, I must admit that looking back, I still feel a little indignant on behalf of that child that I once was, and for my classmates as well. That nagging voice, that budding sense of reason would continue to grow. It wasn't long until I had sussed out the truth about the Easter Bunny and old Saint Nick. Then something dawned on me, a kind of horrible epiphany. Adults seemed to affect the same suspicious, somewhat disingenuous tone when they spoke about God and Jesus as they did when speaking of the Tooth Fairy or one of his or her mythical compatriots. There was that feeling that in fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants fashion, they were clumsily making things up as they went along, fumbling to craft excuses on behalf of some absent entity. Of course it was a little different when dealing with one of the church's learned representatives, the priest responsible for my religious instruction, etc. They always knew how to authoritatively deflect difficult questions. By explaining things away as mysteries of God, this was particularly handy when they had to deal with old chestnuts like, why do bad things happen to good people, or the mystery of the Trinity. Chapter 2. There is no God, and by the way, you have a big nose. Perhaps skepticism runs in the family. It was sometime during my middle school years, I was standing around the kitchen table along with my mother and one of my older brothers. I mentioned something about God in passing, and my brother said casually with a wry smirk in his usual self-amused, detached sort of way, there is no God. I'm sure my mother wasn't pleased with the statement, but she more or less absent-mindedly excused it. I, of course, had my doubts about God, but hearing someone say it out loud, hearing someone say there is no God, froze me in my tracks. It's one thing to doubt God, it's another thing to have someone confirm those doubts. I believe it was during this same conversation, and possibly with other family members standing around, that the same brother pointed out with a subdued sense of amazement how big my budding Roman nose had become. Oh my God, look at the size of the thing, etc. My three siblings all had relatively small and pleasant noses, while all the italic genes in the family tree seemed to have made themselves at home in my proboscis. I could fix my Roman nose, which I eventually did, but remedying my loss of God was another matter. I should add that I hold no animosity towards my brother on the score of these events, well maybe a little regarding the nose, but not really concerning his proclamation that there was no God. I believe he was just stating what his sense of reason had led him to conclude, although he may have taken too much pleasure in delivering the message. Chapter 3. Saints, Vampires, and the Further Loss of God Other than an early penchant for debauchery, I wouldn't say I hold much in common with St. Augustine, but something about the African bishop's pre-conversion struggle has long resonated with me. In his Confessions, Augustine refers to what he terms the fever of my irresoluteness, 
Afflicted with a poignant crisis of faith, Augustine, or Augustine, tomato, tomato, seemingly on the verge of madness, physically beats his forehead and tears at his hair. In fairness, it seems the would-be saint's problem wasn't that he doubted God's existence, as was and still is the case with me, but rather that he suffered from a vacillating willingness to commit himself fully to his faith. I admit my own angst has never driven me to physical paroxysms, but nevertheless I can relate to the inner struggle, the excruciating relentless obsession, and the spiritual, in quotes, gnashing of teeth. I'm reminded of when many years ago I read Anne Rice's popular book series, The Vampire Chronicles. There was a portion of book two, The Vampire Lestat, that I found especially poignant. The still-human Lestat, a young French nobleman, is suddenly seized by a raw awareness of the inevitable and irreversible nature of death. In a state of existential crisis, he proceeds thusly. Below is an abbreviated excerpt from Anne Rice's novel. And in this unbearable state of agitation, I commenced to do something I'd never done before. I turned to those around me and questioned them relentlessly. But do you believe in God? I asked my brother Augustine. How can you live if you don't? But do you really believe in anything? I demanded of my blind father. If you knew you were dying at this very minute, would you expect to see God or darkness? Tell me. I went to the village priest and demanded, did he really believe the body of Christ was present on the altar at the consecration? And after hearing his stammered answers and seeing the fear in his eyes, I went away more desperate than before. But how do you live? How do you go on breathing and moving and doing things when you know there is no explanation? And now, uh, back to me. I know all too well that dark, horrible place where one doubts the meaning of everything. It's a kind of all-or-nothing thinking where either there is a God and life has meaning, or there is no God and the universe is a cold, unforgiving, uncaring, meaningless void. Of course this needn't be the case. One may doubt the existence of a creator and still find life meaningful and rich in experience, but I will explore that possibility more thoroughly in a later chapter. It sounds nonsensical to resent God for not existing, but perhaps that's how I felt as a teenager. I carried a chip on my shoulder towards religion, specifically Christianity and more specifically Roman Catholicism. I suppose it makes sense that I resented Catholicism the most. After all, it was the faith that I was brought up in which I felt the most betrayed by. I took on a kind of Luciferian attitude. I openly mocked anything to do with the religion I was born into and frequently got into heated debates. I would feel compelled to stare conversations with friends and workmates towards the philosophical. Do you believe in God? Do you really think there's an afterlife? How do you go on if there is no God, etc.? I probably seemed half mad, but luckily my work friends were relatively tolerant, and as for my closest friends, they were generally speaking, although perhaps to a lesser extent, possessed of a disposition similar to my own. I remember once I was able to temporarily fight my way out of one of these existential bouts. After much cognitive twisting and turning, a notion suddenly dawned on me. Whether or not there's a god, I still exist. I am this thing, this living being alive in the present. This idea didn't completely banish that awkward, gnawing melancholy, but it offered some metaphorical sunlight, some hope. There was something comforting in the mere fact that I existed. One afternoon, I came home from my aforementioned retail job for lunch and found my mother sitting at the kitchen table, sobbing. She informed me through her tears that my grandmother, her mother, had died. The news froze me, as such news often does. I had been building a kind of emotional wall between myself and my family. 
but somehow I did what was right and hugged my mother. She told me I was a good kid, and I suppose in that instance at least I was. I tried to console my mother by forcing myself to utter a cliché. At least she's in a better place, I said. To my surprise, my mother warily replied, I wish I could believe that. I think this shocked me almost as much as that initial news. My mother, my Catholic mother who used to force us to attend church and Sunday school, who had a dresser decorated with holy statues and a crucifix on the wall, doubted the existence of an afterlife? Although I had been in the throes of doubt, if not downright disbelief, for some time, I still didn't like hearing family members confirm those doubts. If they didn't believe, that meant that maybe my sinking doubts were right all along. Maybe there was nothing more than this existence, and maybe everything I had been taught to believe in, the whole supernatural cosmology that gave life meaning, was a lie. I think my mother's response also bothered me because there was a part of me that was searching for consolation in the face of grief, too. A part of me that wanted to believe my grandmother really would live on somehow. On a side note, I've always resented when people try to suggest that our deceased loved ones do indeed live on, in our memories. This seems like a losing proposition for both the dead and the living. After all, a memory is just that, a memory, a poor substitute for a living person, a lost loved one. And what good does it do the dead? Someone thinking of you after you've been gone seems a paltry form of immortality indeed. So I think I'll leave it there. There's a few more chapters. Actually, I think I may have gone as far as chapter 10. But I just wanted to give you guys a, a taste of the book. I'm always talking about how working on the book was at least in part part of the impetus for doing the podcast. So I figured it was probably long overdue that I let you guys hear a little of it. So I hope you dug it. Um, you guys know the drill. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Uh, please like the Weekend Out Facebook page if you want to help the show out monetarily. You know, if you uh, if you dig me and what I do, uh, you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. Go to Podbean and do a search for the Weekend Doubt. Or you can use uh, Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month and uh, quit anytime you want. All right, brothers and sisters, thank you.